And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and Jeopardy is here. Uh, Joining Jeopardy is Alex Stewart. Good evening. Good evening, Alex Stewart and Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Hello, Seb. How are you? I'm very well. Very well. It's a good day, wasn't it? We had fun. Today, the football was gripping. You spent some time with the wall chart. You yeah. enjoyed that. Yeah. You got into it. Can I say this morning, when I looked at the fixtures... You were not happy. I thought, heh, heh. I thought, yesterday was so much fun. This day looks rubbish. And it wasn't. I mean, one of the games was a bit boring. But the other two were good. I don't even think the first game was that boring. I think it was. I it missed was, almost all of it. Yeah, so it was <laughs> very it was, unfair. It was tense. It, was it wasn't high quality, but it was tense and it was interesting, and it had a really good goal in it. We got a good day of good day of football, which I feel like is sort of a that, that's kind of what happens, isn't it? You look at a tournament and it's scheduled, and you, you plot your your good days, mm. and the good days kind of let you down. Today didn't though. So. No. Do you know where else it's a good football day every day? No. The Athletic. <laughs> If you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO football, you'll find that there'll be a great deal available to you there. I don't know what it is, but it will be really good. There'll be some kind of introductionary offer or perhaps even a free trial. You can try it out and read some of the finest football writers in the world. Alex Stewart, who's your favourite football writer for The Athletic? Um, I like them all. Pick just one name, though. Mm, James Horncastle. Horncastle's a nice guy. What about you, Seb? Danny Taylor. Mm, big names. Big names on the Danny leaf. Yeah. So if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, uh, you'll find a fantastic deal. And you can join us at The Athletic where they do stuff which is a lot higher quality than the stuff that we do here. Anyway, that's all for us for the intro. Uh, and I will leave you in the uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace of the Euros. Let's begin uh, with uh, Jeopardy, of course, but also I would say the height of Jeopardy for today 
Seb, was Wales versus Turkey. It was actually exciting. It was actually nerve-biting. There were stakes. It mattered. And I loved it. And I want you to begin with Bale because he had a brilliant performance, penalty miss aside, which I think we can probably explain from looking at it. Yeah. Um, but the most interesting thing about his performance today, beyond how great it was, was it was very different from what we expect from him, the, the mark of a great player. I think so. Mark of a great player being that as time goes on and some of your attributes fade away, you can adjust and still be just as influential within a game. And Bale still is quick. It's, he hasn't, you know, turned into a kind of, um, you know, a slow player or, or someone that can't beat a man. But he now you're seeing the kind of the creativity and the technical uh, prowess in his passing, which is is fascinating because it's something that is it a hashtag reinvention. I don't know about reinvention. It seems more like it's an ability that's developed over time, yes, um, but something which he hasn't necessarily been encouraged to do because his other attributes were so strong. So if you have Gareth Bale on the ball, you want him probably taking a player on, probably driving in field and getting the ball on his left foot. Still can do that. Am I wrong to say he was kind of doing Harry Kane things today? A little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, and probably without sort of, yes, Kane comes quite deep, but then... As soon as he lays the ball off, he's heading for the penalty box. Bale didn't do that so much. He was happy to kind of pick the ball up maybe 40 yards away from goal and see what was going on ahead of him. And you also, you kind of saw him playing as number 10. He's got, um, people who watch Tottenham this season will have seen this a few times. He's got a really nice raking pass, really nice sort of lofted, mm. you know, feathered touch that kind of can drift the ball in above, a, uh, over the top of a defense and drop it in behind. And you're seeing this sort of, I don't know. It, it's funny because there's a there's a very strange narrative around him. There's a, a little bit of a question mark about whether he's going to play club football again. Yeah. If he does, where? And so it's also it's almost like a, a free hit, isn't it? We don't have a kind of. There's no conversation about what Gareth Bale does as a player next. It's all about Wales for once. It doesn't involve. Um, oh, you know, what is his dedication to his national yeah. team? How does that compare to his commitment to Real Madrid? That stuff. It's all on ice. And you're just seeing what a good technical footballer he is. And in a really pure yeah. way with his passing and his creativity. It's lovely. Do you know how we were talking about Alvaro Morata the other day and saying that we, it feels a bit like he's priced himself out of a club that would actually suit his ability? Yeah. Do you think with Bale, like one of the issues is, obviously he played at Tottenham for, for, for this season and yeah. wasn't really getting much game time at Real Madrid the season before that. Um, do you think it's possible that within the teams that he plays in, there's always going to be somebody who has either been purchased to do exactly what he was doing today or somebody better or more natural at doing what he was doing today and therefore he's never going to get the opportunity to do that at club level for two reasons. There's already someone else in his team and there's not going to be a team that could afford him or afford to pay him to play in that way, presumably, right? Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think that at this point in his career, if he if he does go and play another season away from Real Madrid... It's going to be on loan. Mm-hmm. It's also going to be a place where, because of you know, because that would be a short term move, you wouldn't necessarily be comfortable building a side around him, which no. is what that player kind of wants. Yeah. The one the one place where where Bale's been a constant is for Wales, mm-hmm. and so you feel comfortable allowing players to come into the international setup, grow used to what he can do. Um, whereas at club level, you want I think I think sort of directors of football or coaches they want Bale for the kind of the more literal side of his game. The, the kind of the side that made him famous and made him a European Cup winner. Yeah. You want Bale as not a winger anymore, but probably as a number nine almost is like you want his finishing ability. So go and stand in the box and you know don't um don't drift too far because we're not going to we're not gonna we're not we're not gonna bring in five or six new players and orbit them around you because yeah. that's just that's ridiculous for a loney. Um so it's really interesting. It's it's fun as well. I, I like Gareth Bale. I've loved watching him for a very, very long time. And so 
And I've always loved the way he plays for his country, what it means to him, the way, the enthusiasm he has for it. Because sometimes it goes either one of two ways with players of that standing in the game. When they, when they, when they play for nations who aren't amongst the very best in the world, they either come to international duty with a slight reluctance or they absolutely love it. Mm. it they prefer it to club football. And yeah. Bale is the latter. And, and I think that's endearing is a little patronizing, but it's certainly, it's affecting. It's, um, it's, it's really jeopardy. Nice it's jeopardy. It creates jeopardy. Alex, there was a moment in the, um, I think it was in the first half when Bale had a bit of space ahead of him and it was a 1v1 with him and Soyuncu. They were both running back towards um, Turkey's goal and uh, he got tackled fairly easily and you saw the change in him from the player that he was. You know, at the time we, we were joking about how Mykon would be sitting, sitting at home and watching and saying, you know, time <laughs> catches up with everyone, right? But actually it felt like and I'm, I'm sure this is just me placing a narrative on top of the game. I'm sure he was doing the playmaker stuff beforehand. But it felt like that was the moment where he stopped trying to run past people with the ball and he started making these extremely effective passes. Yeah, there, there, there was a one earlier pass for the, the Ramsey uh, attempt, which was saved really well uh, down low to the goalkeeper's right with his foot. And that was a very cute kind of uh, outside of the foot pass from the left uh, half space but generally speaking it did feel like that was the point at which Bale thought yeah running past people is maybe not the way to go now um, and I think what, what Wales did really effectively throughout was uh, create rotations in midfield so um, Morel who we'll talk about a little bit later I think kind of sat and anchored a little bit but but a, ahead of him there was an awful lot of, of up and down vertical movement uh, and Bale was dropping off and tucking inside. So the pass that he played for Ramsey's goal, which was an absolutely sumptuous curving ball over the top, which Ramsey anticipated perfectly, that came from him being in, in really quite a withdrawn, almost a sort of James Rodriguez assist. Yeah. It was that sort of movement yeah. off the flank, turning onto your stronger foot and curving the ball around. Um and I think Bale, you know, it's interesting. I I recall us talking before about this idea that when players perhaps lose some of their physical ability, lose a yard of pace, um, the really good ones do adapt because they have technical proficiency as well. And that that side of the game almost becomes unovershadowed, if that's not a horribly cumbersome yeah. phrase. Um, but Bale's not had consistent club football in order to to have the time to do this. Like when Ronaldo reinvented himself as more of a kind of penalty box predator, he was still playing very, very regularly. So he had the time to become a different player and Bale hasn't really been afforded that. So you feel like he's almost feeling his way through that process in games that we're watching. Yeah. And that's why your point about him trying to run Soyuncu and failing, it, it did feel like a kind of, oh, I'm going to have to adapt here and now and he did it brilliantly. Turns out he's really good. So it <laughs> helps, you? doesn't it? Yeah. It helps if you're really good at stuff. Someone else who's really good, or at least did a really good thing, was Aaron Ramsey, uh, who scored a super goal. Alex, tell me about the goal. Um, well, it, yes, it, it was just that that movement. I mean, so with, with Wales, right, they've got Kiefer Moore up front. Uh, and I had anticipated with Wales going into this tournament, that they would persist with Harry Wilson uh, up front. They they were making some really nice combinations with with a fluid forward line. Uh, he was in the false nine, wasn't he? 
yeah, that's the sort of role that he he plays. Uh, and Moore had been very successful in qualifying, but in the sort of two or three games prior to the tournament starting, they, they'd been chopping and changing a bit. Moore's come back in, and what he does superbly well is hold the ball up. Mm. And when you've got Ramsey playing as a 10 behind him, Ramsey will come deep and he'll spray the ball around and he'll pass it a lot. But he absolutely excels at these bursting runs past. And when you have a, a focal point, you know, you can achieve it with two ways. You can you can have a player dropping off and, and creating that space by pulling players with him. Or you can just have a player who's big and strong enough to hold up the ball flick things over or make defenders worry. And all of the uh, Turkish defence was focused on what Kiefer Moore was doing, who had his back to goal and wasn't going anywhere. But he'd given them such problems prior to that point that Ramsey's run just wasn't noticed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Bale's pass obviously was as good as it was and found him in space. But I think, I think Wales have got this really effective combination of, you know, wide players with pace, well, lots of pace in Dan James, lots of end product in Bale. But this kind of one-two relationship between Ramsey and, and Kiefer Moore is, is going to be great against teams yeah. who can't track runners or who worry about the, the size and the physicality of a target man. Well, I want to come back to that because I know you've got some thoughts about how they could cause Italy some damage, potentially. We'll talk about that. But Seb, I wanted to say there was a nice moment after Ramsey scored, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. He, um, he scored his goal and he... Um, he ran across the running pat, uh, track at uh, in Baku and he found Chris Gunter, who was the best man at his wedding. It's kind of nice, isn't it? Miles and miles and miles from home, right at the top of the game, European Championship, you get to celebrate a goal like that with one of your best friends. That's really cool. I like sure, that. sure. Football, the thing of moments that are nice. Anyway, there was also lovely stuff at the back, wasn't there, Seb? Not some nice near post defending that you noticed from Wales. Yeah, I'm going to play the hits for the chat group because um, I thought Joe Roden was really good. Rodan. So the first time first time I ever saw him, I went to the Liberty Stadium to watch Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds United. Bielsa had been there for probably a month or two by then. And I went to see Leeds. And Roden really stood out because he he was an elegant player on the ball in a division which isn't necessarily known for breeding kind of cultured defenders. And it's kind of stuck in my mind that he's a finesse player ever since. And he's spent a bit of time at Tottenham, hasn't really played as much as I'd have hoped. But you haven't really seen him under any kind of physical duress. Um, and so what I thought was really impressive tonight is Turkey, Turkey's kind of um, internal central networks weren't really working. Like Chalanoglu wasn't really in the right position. So a lot of their football went out wide. <laughs> Sounds like you're talking about a city planning or something. Yeah, it's kind of a Sim City situation. Yeah, yeah, when you build your little grids. Um, a lot of Turkey's football went out wide. And they arrowed a lot of crosses. They're kind of shelling the Welsh penalty boxes. And Roden was great. And Roden was great under a little bit of a physical bombardment. Obviously, Barrett Yilmaz in open play, but at, at um, defensive set pieces, that Welsh uh, centre-back pairing, and Ben Davis in there as well, because he won a few crucial headers. Mm -hmm. It really stood up to the challenge. And it was... They um, stood up to Big Bad Bulma. Uh, <laughs> oh, you missed it. I missed oh, it. Big Bad Burak. Yeah. I he was... It was interesting because it showed me a side of Joe Redden I haven't really seen before. Uh, I know yep. all about what he can do on the ball and that he can pass and carry the ball a little bit, but uh, to be kind of old-fashioned and resilient, yeah, it was impressive. He has a sort of mechanical side to him, doesn't he? Rodan. Alex, also, Joe Morrill was a player that you were uh, particularly impressed with for his crucial clearances. Yeah, he made some good clearances. He was he was Wales's 
deepest midfielder most of the time. Um, although I thought Wales' defensive organisation was excellent and, uh, yeah, rightly kudos to Roden and also Mepham um, for his clearances. But I think what, what Morrill did really, really well was when Wales did manage to get some possession and, and initially it was a little bit, you know, I think it finished relatively well split on possession, but they weren't massively getting their foot on the ball. And and Morel's ability to move out of the cover shadow, make sure that he was the link between the solidity of the Welsh defence and then the exciting attacking options, mm. I thought was really, really impressive. And I, I'll be honest, he was not a player that I had come across sure. at all prior to this. He's he, he the player who plays at Luton? He plays at Luton, yeah. So for, for him to, to step up, because... There's a contrast here. So, so Turkey's left back uh, plays for Le Havre in Ligue 2. Sorry, Ligue 2. Uh, and he's clearly like Turkey's weakest player, I think, you know, mm. and, and it was possible to target him. He got very few crosses in. Morel is playing at a level that is considerably higher than any level he's played before, but he doesn't look out of place at all. It's nice. And I, and I think. I think that says a lot about obviously his ability as a footballer, but also his character that he's not, he's not thinking, you know, oh. and I, I do wonder whether this point that you were making earlier, Seb, about people like Bale and Ramsey clearly, you know, playing elite club careers, but loving playing international football and creating this sense of, of harmony and togetherness within a squad that it allows those other players that are less experienced to feel much more comfortable in that environment. I think that might be really important. Because it could be so difficult for someone like that. Yeah. You come from the championship. Bale has won um, four European Cups. Um, Aaron Ramsey's been at the top of the game for a really long time and you know comes from a place where, which is very, very different to the championship. And obviously if you've been in Luton Town, you've also been in League One quite recently. Um, and that's a real credit to the professionalism of those players. Because yeah. it is, it does come down to atmosphere. How many times, for instance, have you... Have you heard a, a story like a long read, which is about an unsuccessful tournament performance center around bad atmosphere? People were bored. There were cliques. There were unhappy players who were missing their homes and their families and stuff. So if you if you allow people to be accepted and you allow people to become part of a group, you're going to get a better football team. I know it's not the most important thing, but it's a great starting point. Yeah. Um, I, wonder, Ramsey, I wonder whether for Ramsey, it's more a case of, certainly it's for Bale because of his, his time at Real Madrid because he didn't play very much. But Ramsey's been a little bit peripheral at Juventus. It must be nice to come back to a, to a place where he isn't permanently on trial, where it isn't, there isn't a kind of debate about his worth and his salary. It's just a, right, he's one of our most important players, you're starting. And that must be great. That must be so reassuring for a player. I also wonder whether, obviously, Rob Page has stepped into the head coach role uh, slightly precipitously um, mm -hmm. and, and was the assistant coach prior to doing so. And I think clearly is doing a really, really good job. Evidently so, yeah. But the assistant coaches are usually tasked with having a more close and personal relationship with players, whereas managers kind of stand off a little bit. I wonder whether going into a tournament with your head coach having recently been the person with whom you had those more personal conversations and, and who was maybe a bit more hands-on in training yeah. and so on, again, just creates a greater degree of, of harmony and makes people mm. feel comfortable. Unity, maybe. Yeah, exactly this, yeah. yeah. I always thought Closeness. it can go one of two ways, though, isn't it? Like it, In this case, absolutely, I think you're, you're spot on. But it's, it's, either, it's one or the other, isn't it? Either 
you don't, as an assistant, you're a little bit too matey with the players. And so when it comes to actually coaching mm. the team and disciplining and dropping, like there are a lot of stories about assistants finding it very difficult to step up and take uh, and assume those duties. But this seems perfect. This is very together. I have to say, I agree. I think if either of you stepped up to be in charge of TIFO, Don and Sol would run riot. <laughs> they, would, they wouldn't accept authority. They, they, they'd barely do it at the moment, to be fair. It's they're, they're just, just hanging on a knife, it really is. Um, Wales desperately needed this victory, right? Yeah. Having lost the first game to yeah. Switzerland, who obviously lost tonight to Italy. We'll come to talk about, to talk about that as well. well Drew with Switzerland. Hmm? Drew with Switzerland, no? 1-1 one, one draw. Was it? Sure was. Oh, I'm thinking of Scotland who lost. Oh, yeah. Oh, they, Wales got four you're, points. You've got your home nations mixed up there. But Wales got yeah. four points. Mm-hmm. Is that because you're just insular in English and you're arrogant and you just think no other place it exists? Might, probably, it must be. be. A little bit like that. Yeah. Oh, so they're through, aren't they? Pretty much. No one well, doesn't go through with four points. It's very. It would be. It would take something very unlikely for Wales not to go through now. Yeah. So as long as they don't take an absolute battering from an Italian side who are already through, definitely already through, then they will be playing in the last 16. That's rattled you because you've, you were about to- you It's been about a long to, week. I was about to launch into something yeah. that was completely- Launch irrelevant. into it anyway, and that's yeah. what it might've been like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Wales well, really needed this win. I mean, that's still technically true because if they'd lost, they'd they would have been, been looking position. for something yeah. from Italy. I mean, the, the point stands because their final game is against Italy, right? And I suppose it almost doesn't really matter what happens now. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose the the only potential downside is that Switzerland could beat Turkey, finish on four points too, have a better goal difference. But I, I, I think I struggle to see any third place team with four points not going through at this point. Yeah, I agree. And also because we covered this last night, as long as the first round may be and as many games as it involves, there aren't many teams that get eliminated. Yeah, You get to four points, you're kind of safe because you'll, you'll see teams get through on three points. Promise you. Um, so yeah, and obviously only eight are, are leaving. So yeah. maybe one point you're out, two points you're probably out, four you're going to go through. So it'd be okay. Okay. Well, in which case, there's only one thing we wanted to touch on with Turkey, who I suppose we can talk a bit more about for the next game against uh, Switzerland. It's a very, mm-hmm. very big one. But it was um, it was a, a, a statistic that uh, we debated over during the game about Soyuncu, Seb. Yeah, it was. It's really interesting. So we we this conversation started as you saying something, Joe, and me kind of dismissing you, being like, oh, "Shut up." That's right. That, that is what happened. Right. Mm-hmm. So apparently, um, Soyuncu recorded the quickest, uh, the the sixth quickest sprinting speed in the Premier League last season. Yeah, behind Col- he reached the sixth top speed. Yeah, there isn't an elegant way of expressing that. I there? think I just expressed it pretty elegantly. Yeah, you, did sure. all right, you did all right. Okay, but so he finished behind Carl uh, Walker, Adama Traore, Mason Greenwood. Uh, Aston Villa's Trezeguet and Aaron Wan-Bissaka, which he just doesn't look like he should be able to move that quickly because he's like a he's like a big vending machine, isn't he? Yeah, with a ponytail, but that's big true. Machine. Yeah, and it's I don't know maybe it's uh you know big vending machine rolls down the hill it kind of picks up speed I guess <laughs> but I'm not thinking about Wan-Bissaka. I assume he's only had the opportunity to reach that speed because he's often too far back. And then he needs to make up the. Then pace he's making up the the ground, and he's 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 bombing forward to pr- to provide the overlap. Maybe the question is, when did Soyuncu record that speed? What was the scenario in the game where that happened? I mean, he must have been chasing back with I, I, a with a striker. Well, this is this is it. Like I feel like for a centre back, this having appearing on this list is kind of damning because it means that yeah. you've been caught out <laughs> of position. Yeah. You're trying to cover for it, and you're busting your gut to get back into position or cover for somebody else's mistake. Mm. So it must be a symptom of something going wrong somewhere. Yeah. Um, but even so, um, Soyuncu quicker than we thought. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Okay. Uh, well, in that case, we'll come back to talk about the Wales-Italy game. And we can hear from Alex after we've talked about Italy-Switzerland. We'll be back after this. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruits and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Italy 3, nil Switzerland. Uh, Seb, the other day we we were saying Italy had never scored three goals in a European championship, and now they've done it twice in the space of however many days was between those games. They were good, weren't they? Yeah, that feels like 50% of it. They were great, they were fun. They had an awful lot of space and joy in midfield. Like every time I, I looked up or every time um, a move broke down in their half, it seemed very easy for them to kind of transition straight through the, down the middle of the pitch. And how often did they how often did they find themselves either three on three, four on three, four on four, with those inside forwards kind of like racing into space outside the defense? It's amazing mm-hmm. how often that happened. Yeah. It was it made for a really fun watch and, and we certainly enjoyed it. But um, I thought Switzerland were absolutely dismal, particularly in midfield. I thought they were dreadful. Really disappointing because I, yeah. I associate them with being a bit stodgy and resilient and you know as a basic as a as a as a first level. Yeah, it's Switzerland and Sweden. They're always they're always <sighs> they, defensive. They were none of those things. They were they were really poor. Yeah, really I mean poor. they made. It, I don't know whether to say Alex. What do you think? Did they make Italy look good with those fantastic vertical passes that seemed to cut through the entire midfield, or were Italy good? Bit of both. Bit of both. I think it's a bit of both because. You shouldn't be able to pass the ball like that through any football team. I would agree with this. Apart from yes. the very worst. Apart from bad football teams. Yeah, bad ones. Some of them are bad. Um, but yes, I mean, it's weird because we associate Switzerland with being kind of stolid and, uh, you know, like purposefully irritable and hard to break down and not fun and exciting. and. This Switzerland isn't fun and exciting either, but it's it's also kind of porous. It has um, Jaden Shakiri. It has Jaden Shakiri, who is able to try and do things, but the lack of support, uh, Safarovic playing up front is never going to give you a great deal because he doesn't really seem to move either. Like he can't finish, but mm. his. He's not exactly dragging defenders. Maybe the defenders just look at it and go, well, he's not going to score anyway, so why bother? But. I think the the problem was that Switzerland's midfield was sort of trying to, like Freuler was trying to push up, trying to get into support a little bit. Um, Xhaka was dropping back and trying to uh, allow this progressive passing out to the wing backs. So, because Ricardo Rodriguez looked like the only player who was going to make something happen for Switzerland in terms yeah. of getting forwards. And so him to Xhaka and then Xhaka either passing it short to him or trying to hit that channel and drag uh, Benuccio Chiellini over to it 
That was what made sense for Switzerland to do. But what it did was it created this stretched situation in their midfield that Italy, when they then got the ball, were like, well, there's there's no one there. We can just hit it straight through. And if you've got passes of the quality of Jorginho and Locatelli mm. in that position, plus you've got that rapid front three and Barella pushing forward to support, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Can I say on a slightly different note that Jordan Shakiri looks like someone who lives on a planet that has a lot more gravity than <laughs> He's very compact, isn't he? his thighs are like it looks like someone's pressed down on his head and it's come out a bit here yeah but like in a in an attractive way i'm not saying he's unattractive or weird looking he just looks like a man who as i said lives on a planet with a lot more gravity than earth yeah he also looks well beyond his best now it feels like not playing do you mean as a footballer or as a, <laughs> well, as, well, as, as a man no i i mean as a footballer because it, it seems like not playing at liverpool has kind yeah. of taken its toll on him yeah um and I don't know. He's I, fun I, and sparky. He should be playing somewhere. He's 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 really gifted. It's really fun to see him on the ball, and he's um, he's a thrilling player, as proven in the last European Championship. He thrills. He thrills. Uh, I just feel like um, what was going on behind him wasn't good enough tonight. And same for Braylon Bolo, right? Because he yeah, thrilled yeah, the yeah. other day, uh, and completely different caliber of opposition. Too. Very few carries. I it just didn't. The um, don't like it football. Didn't really work on Italy, so... Um, okay, well, speaking of like-it football, though, Alex, tell me about the goal that was made in Sassuolo and what that means. Uh, well, so Locatelli and Berardi both pay for, for Sassuolo. We did a video on them a while back looking at mm-hmm. um, De Zerbi's tactics. What De Zerbi likes to do is, is empower his players to make their own decisions uh, and play quite high-risk passes, and so that that pass from from Locatelli out to Berardi was a relatively low percentage pass, but it was beautifully executed. And then you've got this ability of Locatelli, which I kind of hadn't seen an awful lot from him before. Like when he he does possess the ability to shoot from sort of deepish, but generally speaking, when Locatelli scores goals, it's because the ball breaks to him at the edge of the box. But this kind of steaming up in a proper box to box way. And finishing a long move like that is something that is not necessarily what you'd associate with him. Um, Everyone arrived at the right time for everything in that yeah. in that goal. I thought that was the nice yeah. that was made. That's what made it look so nice. It was like completing itself throughout the move. It, it was the sort of move that if it had been a set piece, you would have gone, "Oh, that was worked on on the training ground." Yeah, for sure, because it just clicked perfectly mm-hmm. and there is a real degree of understanding with this italian team and we've talked about this the last time we talked about italy how they have been revamped considerably from the the squad i i can't remember how many games ago it was that we you know we looked at it and it was donnarumma had survived and Jorginho had survived but that was many. from that was actually from the last game they lost right so, so that, that was back in 2018 quite a while ago 20, now because 2019 2018 it's a long time ago yeah was, so it's yeah. like in the last 10 games, they've scored 31 goals and they haven't conceded. Yeah. And and the team hasn't changed a great deal within that period. It just feels like every... I mean, you know, Verratti probably would be playing if he were fit, but... Is, that's an interesting thing, though, like with Verratti, because Verratti would have been starting instead of Locatelli in this tournament. If, if, Verratti, is, if Verratti is fit and available, um, presumably he'll get some minutes in this third game because it's kind of a, a dead rubber um, for, for Italy... That's a bit of a decision because he's so gifted. How do you say to someone like that? I don't know. Like, how do you? 
it's very like it's it's a difficult position for Mancini to win. Is what I'm saying because yeah. Locatelli's coming is brilliant. He looks like um, the perfect uh, sort of component for this system, um, as evidenced by the first goal. Arguably also for the second, although Swiss defending was just dismal for that. Um, it's hard to drop a player. Like it's I, really difficult now. I think if anyone actually, it's Jorginho that's vulnerable in that because yeah. Locatelli can play at the base of a midfield three. The passing range is there. The physicality to protect the back four is is arguably better yeah. than, than Jorginho. He offers less of that. And in fact, you actually would see, I mean, the Italian midfield is really fluid, right? But yeah. there were a number of occasions where it was Locatelli that was dropping back to be the guy that collects the ball off the defense and then shuttles it forward. And Jorginho was actually pushing higher up. So I could, I could see whether Verratti comes in into the center or whether you keep Verratti as one of the side players so you get that slight Metzala thing of being yeah. able to push into the, the half spaces and Locatelli anchors. It's hard to know. I, I, if, you're, if I were Roberto Mancini, I would have better hair for a start. But if I, you know, I, I wouldn't upset the balance of a team that's playing this well, even for someone as talented as Verratti. I wonder, I mean... Hold on, hold on, hold on a second. Should we not acknowledge the moment? Better hair. He's got wonderful hair. That's what he means, though. That's what I mean. Oh. If he were Roberto Mancini, he would have Re Roberto Mancini's hair, and that is just MVP. carry on. Just carry on without me. All I was going to say is that we don't know this point because um, haven't heard any more about it. But um, Keelini limps off with what looked like a hamstring injury, which, if so, done for the tournament. Well, he was straight away. It was like it, ice he didn't even go down. It was I'm taking off the armband. I'm off. He also like once he was on the bench, it was kind of there wasn't much recovery going on. He was yeah. like a step away from like having a beer because tournament over. It's the summer, you know. Um, I just wonder because Serbi is going to probably take his place. He obviously came on from tonight. I wonder if there has to be a little bit more um, defensive deference as a result, a little bit more protection because Serbi is nowhere near what Chiellini is. A Cherbi, a Cherbi, good player, not mm. Chiellini, good. Um, even at this stage of his career. And so you think, right, when Italy are on the front foot, terrific. When they're not, because what we haven't seen yet is a proper examination of that unit yeah. and that goalkeeper. So that's a, that's a little, that's something to watch, I guess, as the tournament goes on. Yeah. A bit of jeopardy, sort of. Maybe. Nice bit of jeopardy. Nice bit of jeopardy. Uh, Terry Woodward in the chat says, uh, did Joe stop and get off his horse? No, Joe rode on. Thank you, Terry Woodward, for that. Very nice. Very nice. We should have all just sat in silence as that happened. We should have done. Yeah. I did. Um, <laughs> Alex, big game to come. Well, I suppose it depends how you look at it. Which is the bigger game then? Is it Wales, Italy, perhaps more exciting, or Switzerland, Turkey? Huge game. Um, well, it's got to be Switzerland, Turkey in terms of what happens. Progression. But, you know, goal difference-wise, Switzerland are on minus three, Turkey are on minus five. Mm -hmm. um, it's looking pretty bad for both of them. So unless there's a, you know, a, an emphatic win by one of those two teams and... Well, I guess if Switzerland have one point and they win the game, four should probably be enough to see them go through, right? But Turkey would need to win by a, a number of goals. You would think based and on... And they would need other things to happen in their favour, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and neither of... I mean, both of those teams have been pretty weak defensively. Mm -hmm. Um but they've also been pretty lacklustre going forwards. I mean... It could be a really classic football match. I think it'll be terrible. Yeah. I think it'll be I think it'll be incredibly dull and it'll be settled when 
Soyuncu rashly brings down Mbolo for a penalty. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. But we have been talking a bit over the past couple of days about uh, the prospect of Wales facing Italy. Um, you think there's, there's not that this will be the outcome, but there, there, there are ways for Wales to cause Italy some, some, some issues. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting, like Seb says, about um, a Serbi coming in, whether or not that's going to make a difference if the midfield balance in front of it is affected by Verratti coming back again. So there are some, you know, imponderables here, but particularly on the right hand, uh, sorry, on the left hand side, Spinazzola, who I think has excelled so far this tournament. Been brilliant. Um, the one thing that's not really had to happen a great deal is, is to have him tested defensively, um, which is great because he's basically playing like a winger. Uh, however, if you're Wales and you've got, you know, Gareth Bale on that side, potentially with someone like Ramsey running into the channel uh, behind, uh, or maybe even they play Dan James on that side mm. and try and get that pace in behind. I think Wales' ability to spring runners from deep um, with that big target man who who's going to cause anybody problems, even people like Bonucci, uh, you can just see, I mean... A lot of teams this tournament have have done well or badly based on how well they either exploit the defense behind the opposition's fullbacks or wingbacks or how well they defend that space. Um, and Italy are pretty gung-ho in this respect. And because they have the quality they do, that's been fine so far. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how much Wales can test that because I, I yeah. don't think Wales will win. But I think there will be other teams looking at that, just like they will have looked at, at Portugal's build-up problems or France's issues with defensive shape and gone, okay, maybe no one is completely unbeatable here. Mm. I, I, I don't think they face a, an Italy team which in any way resembles this one. I think you're going to see like Blotti and Bernadeschi and Bastone in that team. Emerson probably starts at fullback. Just because of the season we've had, like you've got to just you got to look after these players and you've got to, if you're through... Um, you're gonna you're gonna sit out this game if you can. I would have thought. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't, maybe. I'm just I looking would, at the wall chart to see if they were to finish anyone. second in the group, who they would play. But the wall chart's too small on my computer, so I can't tell you that. What the wall chart did tell me earlier, though, you were not happy about this. No, no, this is a different thing. Okay, we'll come to the thing I wasn't yeah. happy about. What the wall chart did tell me earlier was that um, Italy's most likely opponent in the quarterfinals were they to finish, were both teams to finish first in their group and win their respective uh, round of 16 ties, is Belgium. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, Alex, what you think about Italy's chances against Belgium, because that'll be the first team, first time perhaps that we see them come up against a, a very high quality team. Yeah, and I think that will be the examination of, uh, of that central defensive partnership at that point in time. Um, but again, it's really hard to know, you know, will Belgium have De Bruyne back by that point or not? Like there are fitness issues uh, that Belgium have. I think maybe there's a slight advantage that the Italian centre-backs are going to have had a season against Lukaku. So they're going to know him pretty well. Um, I, it's hard to know. I, I still feel that Belgium have enough weaknesses at the back and, and the slowness of their centre-backs means that Italy will be able to draw them out yeah. uh, and probably cause problems through those channels. You know, Again, we've seen a lot of teams, if not concede goals, concede opportunities where one of the centre-backs has been dragged out to cover that space 
working a nice quick, Finland did it to Russia a couple of times today. Um, you just create that pass on the angle that, that takes it infield and then back out very quickly and puts a man through. And I think it's really hard describing stuff like that on a podcast, isn't it? <laughs> Doing stuff with my hands. I know what I'm trying to convey here. Um, but I think I think Belgium will be vulnerable to that. That is a particular issue they have, particularly on the right-hand side. Um, the centre-back will step out too far. Uh, and I, I just feel like Italy have got enough in those wide areas to exploit that. Okay. Uh, well, listen, we'll be back after this. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back. And uh, Finland-Russia also happened. Russia won 1-0. Um, my note here, Alex, to you says, get Alex to talk about Alexei Moranchuk. Yes. Yes, Alexei Moranchuk. Um, so Moranchuk is the guy who scores this lovely, lovely goal today against Finland. And I just quickly kudos to Finland um, because obviously very, very difficult circumstances in their last game here. I think they defended really resolutely. Um they have a nice balance in their midfield with Glenn Camera and Robin Lodd being a little bit more creative and pushing up. Um, so yes, I think Finland will not get talked about much other than as an adjunct to that incident. Um, but I think they played really good football today, um, given the circumstances. Alexei Moranchuk um, is a lovely, lovely player. He's not even managed 700 minutes in Serie A for uh, Atalanta this season, but if you look at what he does, he's a six foot, uh, basically a 10 or a right inside forward, but left footed. He has a really, really good range of passing. He is a comparable player in terms of creativity, according to FB ref to people like Phil Foden, you know, his progressive passing, which is his ability to play passes that, that go past a number of opposition players and, and gain a particular distance is very, very good. And he just exhibits a, a kind of a creativity and a touch. He's one of these players that Atalanta unearthed from a fairly unprestigious I mean, locomotive Moscow in this instance. He's unlucky that he's up against uh, Malinovsky, um, the Ukraine player who, who plays in a very similar position for Atalanta. But I think he, he looks class. When you watch yeah. him for Atalanta... He looks fantastic in the clips I've seen. He wears number 59, which I'm slightly un-okay with. You know, I was thinking that there are probably very few players playing in the world at any one time who can score the goal he scored today. Just because, a couple of reasons, like one of the issues in in Russian football with the, with the national team at the moment is the kind of the alienation of the attacking midfield. 
I like Golovin is another one. Cherishev didn't play today, but you know, um, and Moranchuk's in that group as a kind of um, a victim of Zubable, basically, if such a term exists. Um, and I felt like Rush didn't create many chances, and that was one of those which it fell to him in the box in a situation which you wouldn't even describe as a half chance, really, because of where the defenders were and the position of the goalkeeper. And the transfer of the ball from right foot to left foot was mm. lightning quick to the point where the defenders couldn't even adjust their body position quickly enough to cut off the angle. And the finish was in the one place that he could have scored from. It's just a, like, I I don't pretend to learn an awful lot about Moranchuk, but it's just one of those where you think, I know it's a goal, and I know it's just a goal, and it's just a moment, a single game. I also know it's against a not inferior opponent, but not a an elite one. But seriously impressive to be able to do those things. It's a... It's just um, it's a speed of thought as well because in that position you're it's not a mechanical action it's a it's kind of a creative solution to what is quite a complex problem it's like how do I how do I how do I get a shot on goal from here and when a player solves that problem that quickly and that comprehensively can't help to be impressed by that and he also does that with his short passing in and around the edge of the box for Atalanta mm-hmm. uh, um, because having highlighted him I watched some clips of him during halftime in the last game and he. He does have this ability to dig the ball out under pressure and create something with a little through pass or a little dink that players can run onto. Of course, if you're playing for Russia, even in that slightly withdrawn creative role, Zuba ball. Right. Zuba's <laughs> not doing that. <laughs> so you've you've got someone who is ideally equipped to play quick little strikers, runs in behind. You know, you, you think about maybe as a sort of an inside right in a Chelsea side with someone like Werner cutting in and and feeding off those little balls because it's great having a left footer who tucks into that position because of the angles of passing they can open up. But if it's Zuba who's just sort of chugging along and it it feels like a real waste. Russia don't have many other strikers though. So it it seems like they're really wedded to this style. Do you reckon he might be, I mean, I... I, I can see a situation where Atlanta play Malinovsky and him in the same formation. I, mean, I wonder whether he's possibly, I mean, they're slightly different players, but maybe a kind of a long-term successor to Papi Gomez. Wonderful player, but sort of his, he had an Indian summer at the end of his career and he's now at Sevilla and he's still a good player, but he's, you know, he was, um, he's not a, a long-term solution for anyone. So I wonder if you can kind of pair him off a centre forward long-term. Malinovsky's slightly more withdrawn. I don't know. That might be too aggressive. I don't need strikers. Who need strikers? Don't play with strikers. Just have them alternating, pushing up. Into kind of rotating full yeah. signs. Uber hipsterism. Absolutely. Fine. That's kind of the, 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 the next level of Atlanta, isn't it? Let's have two nine and a halves. Intervene. Overlapping centre back. Speaking Intervene. of the next level of things, um, <laughs> of course, uh, this tournament is a pan-European tournament. We weren't sure that it would be uh, mm. with... Uh, with the old pandemic and everything, but it is a pan-European tournament. And uh, do you know what I've decided, Seb? Well, you stood up in the middle of the day and just told us you hated it. I stood up and I said, everyone's attention, please. And I turned the TV off during a football match and I said, I don't like it because it's not what I want. It was a quite petulant moment. But you have a point. You do have a point. My point is that one of the things I've realised and remembered that I like about World Cups and about European Championships is one all of the really stupid and cheesy sort of broadcasting adverts and and TV titles and intros and all the rest of it, the BBC and ITV and whoever make based around 
some sort of racial stereotypes of the countries that the tournament is being hosted in. Really fun. Uh, I like uh, being able to see uh, all of the different places within a country that I've, many of them, which I've never been to, uh, to before, learning a little bit about the country, hearing all of the, the commentary around the tournament, reflecting the, the, the local uh, the culture, all the, uh, you know, the socioeconomic situation of the country, all the rest of it. All of, like, I think you know, one of the things I remember about uh, the 2014 World Cup in Brazil was Brazil. That's one of the yeah. things I remember about it. It was exciting. And and being in the stadium in the middle of the jungle where the massive grasshopper went oh, on the, Hamas the, Rodriguez's the, the Hamas arm. Rodriguez, the dinosaur. And the... That was amazing. That was amazing. And even, you know, like, I don't know. I just think, I it, don't, well, it feels like the Champions League and I don't like that. I want it to be in one place that we can, that I can be excited about that place and imagine being in that place. There are pros to this, of course, and I'm going to let you tell me what they are. There are. Well, I've got one more con, which is that I quite like when a tournament happens in one country, that tournament has a thing. Like, so 2010, Vuvuzelas in South Africa. 2014, massive bugs and, you know, uh, and interesting yeah. stories and, you know, beautiful scenery and amazing new built stadiums in, in, in Brazil. And, you know, you go further back and further back. And I think of 2002 in South Korea and Japan, where the kind of the... It's like different type of supporting and the kind of mm-hmm. the, the really affecting enthusiasm for the local fans. And that the different the time that you had to watch it too. It's the one of the night. Time. I mean, I know that's more of a World Cup yeah. thing than a Euros but thing. It, but like so, watching yeah. those games, the, the was it, it was South Korea Japan. What was that? Two thousand and two. Yeah, I watched uh, the England Brazil game. Yeah, where uh, where uh, old uh, Ronaldinho chipped it over David Seaman. I was at school watching that because it yeah. was in the morning and yeah. we were all in the I don't know the whatever you call it, the gym or whatever, all sat on the floor watching it on the big screen or probably on a TV that had been wheeled in, you know, a massive, oh my God, a massive old TV. We were doing our first year exams at university. Were you? There were quite a few people that were, including myself at this point in time, that were coming into exams slightly drunk because... <laughs> because you get up the games to in the morning, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and then, Amazing. Yeah, not a good combination. No. So there are pros though. And one of them is... Pan-European tournament, okay, uh, pandemic aside, because it's a slightly unusual situation, obviously. It was intended as a situation where- And I don't like the pandemic. We don't like the pandemic. Um, But pan-European tournament should afford many more fans the opportunity to go to games. Yes, this is true. That's a good thing. People who who could afford a a ticket to the game, but not the travel associated with going to a game in another place. And that's a good thing. Also another good thing. So one of the problems with hosting international tournaments is, of course- the cost of actually building all the infrastructure. Certain countries, uh, Germany, England, probably uh, France, they can hold a tournament with very, very little notice. Sure. Other other countries are unable to do so because of the economic costs or because they lack the space. And or clearly because, it's not worth it either. And it's because it's not see. worth it because yeah. how, many, how many white elephant stories do you get after tournaments? So mm-hmm. this is a kind of a compromise. A, you know, we, um, you know, a, a place like, I know it didn't end up hosting any games, but a place like Bilbao, you know, uh, in the Basque country, that has a chance to host a major tournament game. That yes. is a good thing. Yes. Um, and it's a it's a way of of um, spreading that privilege out without asking countries to... Um, spend hundreds of millions of pounds. Spend hundreds of millions of pounds and sacrifice other things which are probably more important, spending yes. on healthcare and education and stuff yes. like that, basically. You're, I mean, listen, and for that reason, it's right. It's just a bit placid. As sometimes the right decision often is. I don't know where we are sometimes. So yeah. we're watching a game, we turn it on, we're all sat here, and somebody amongst us um, will say, where's this one happening? Because yeah. you don't know, because all the stadiums have kind of been designed to look the same. We're not seeing a lot of the local geography. 
I don't get a sense of the culture. Some of that is coronavirus, sure. A lot of it is just this kind of, it doesn't really happen anywhere. It's a tournament occurring in, in the Eurozone. Yeah. And it feels also, weirdly homogenous. And the I, home advantage thing is just weird. It is a bit weird, yeah. Because there's a, well, there's 11 host cities down from 13, right? Yeah. And we've seen England play their game at home. Mm-hmm. We've seen Italy play games at home. Who else have we seen play games at home? Um, Denmark played in Copenhagen. Be- did Belgium uh, Germany play, play in Munich? No, I no. don't think Germany so. Germany played at home, you're right. Uh, anyway, Scotland uh, played in Glasgow, obviously. A number of teams yeah. played at home, but not every team will get the opportunity to do that. Right. That's, I know that at, a, at an ordinary World Cup or a Euros where it's hosted in one place, one team seems to have a home advantage. That's still fairer, I think. Hey, Chris says uh, Spain played in Seville. Yes, they did. They played at Betis this uh, round. And Hungary as well. Hungary, yep. They played um, in Budapest. So, yes. It's weird. It is weird. And I, I've i loved it. But uh, I am glad this is a kind of one-off centenary. Um, I just... Yeah. I, I'm aware of the shortcomings and I'm aware of the faults and the flaws and the bidding processes and, you know, the uh, the staging of tournaments. I, I completely accept all of those issues. It's just that I like the traditional format a bit more. Yeah. I don't like people flying around lots. There is this sort of, a, yeah, the environmental factor, I suppose. Well, I think there's... Although, to be honest, in most countries that have hosted a big major tournament recently, Russia, Brazil, you're probably doing about as much flying as they are in Europe. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. about the same distance. Which hey, is also really bad. World Cup is going to be in um, Canada and yeah. the United States and Mexico I, before I, too long. Is, there, I just, is Canada in the United States or Canada, United States and Mexico? And Mexico. Yeah, and Mexico. all three. So that's going to be a huge amount of... Uh, I think football mm. uh, has a real responsibility to address its carbon footprint, particularly with regards to travel. Mm-hmm. And... I get that there are good arguments in favor of, of spreading tournaments around like this. Um, and I think allowing groups of fans who maybe otherwise wouldn't get to see it, that's great. I understand the democratization of football in that way. But I also think that, um, you know, as we did the video on, on climate change and football, football is going to be really, really badly affected by climate change. And that, and also the high levels of polyester and football shirts and the lack of sustainability there. You know, football is contributing to climate change and it's doing very little to offset Yeah, that. yeah, for sure. Also, that democratisation of, of football, it's a little bit of a flawed argument because, yes, you can stage a game in a country, but if the ticket prices are three times the, mm. the, the, the price of a local wage... Oh, well, the, the, the corporate side of it is always bad. And, and obviously there are issues with, you know how the process of awarding goes and, and the, the nature of some of the host venues. Yeah, but that's very hey, political. We a, Let's not work. We did a video on climate change. Where could you see that, Joe? <laughs> Trying to piggyback off the back of I climate already, change for our own that. benefit doesn't feel like no, the because, right thing. No, no, After a we, conversation with lots of nuance where we talk about <laughs> what's right and wrong, to try to profit commercially off the back of climate change is not the route here, Seb. It's not the route. If you were interested, moving on. If you were interested, though, if someone wanted to learn more, you or, already said it. I'll no t- one's I'll, listening to this that doesn't know where. I'll they tweet could find the video it. link out anyway. Sure, let's all profit from climate. In fact, that's what they say about climate change, isn't Did it? Did we not demonetize that video? I don't think so. The way <laughs> I'm sure it's being sponsored by uh, Gazprom as well. The way uh, that you. Um, uh, you combat climate change, as they say, in, in, a, in a sort of capitalistic world, is to make it make money. That's the only way that you can save the planet. 
<laughs> anyway, um, let's move on to Sergio Ramos leaving Real Madrid. An even bigger story. An earthquake in football. Bigger than all of climate change. And I'm going to go and get the wall chart while you talk about Sergio Ramos leaving. Feels seismic, doesn't it? Are you actually going to walk it? Yes, you are going to do that. Yes, I am. It feels... I can't really associate... I can't imagine Real Madrid without either Sergio Ramos playing or lurking in the stands or being around it somehow or being associated with it. It feels like a very strange situation when we you might have a, a Clasico in which there is no possibility of a Sergio Ramos red card. That feels quite odd. No, because because Joe's gone, you're actually going to have to take part in this. You can't He's just, just I, walked I, off. I can't just monologue about Sergio Ramos. Oh, okay. I thought that's what because you were I saying. also I can't swear. We're doing this live, and there oh, are words that okay. I would use to describe yeah. him which are not acceptable. Well, it's the end of an era, isn't it? Uh, I the thing about him is it, it's the end of an era, and it feels like the the right time for him to be leaving. At the same time, I could probably make a good argument for him going to at least six top-rate European teams. And being, you he's know, still incredibly he's good. He's still a really good player. And I do, I do worry. I mean, I don't worry because I'm not a Real Madrid fan, so I don't really care. But I, I would have concerns for that club that there is the, the the good spine of that team who have been there a while and will provide leadership and so on. It's Modric. It's Price. you know, yeah, Varane has been there a long time and is a good player, but Varane if he's is staying. We don't know about if that he's yet. staying, which yeah. he may not be. And and Varane is he's a very quiet player. Yeah. You know, he's hugely experienced and he's played at the highest level for a long time and, and internationally with France and so on. But um he's not exactly the kind of muscular, shouty leader that Sergio Ramos is. Thibaut Courtois, again, a, you know, long term presence in that dressing room. Benzema. Very Benzema's not loud. Benzema's too cool. For I feel that. like Benzema's Benzema just has the aura of a captain, though, potentially. Yeah, possibly. <clears throat> but again, he's I don't know. I just I I don't see him I don't see that degree of of arrogance, actually. I think, you know, sometimes when we talk about sportsmen, sports people, arrogance can be good. Right. And Definitely. Sergio Ramos, if you're if you're a Real Madrid player or fan, his arrogance is a good thing. It's a we are going to win this game, whoever we're against, whatever, because we're Real Madrid and I'm Sergio Ramos and I don't give up, you know. Well also he's And a, they've they've got no one like that now. But that arrogance is justified because he's associated with so much success. Oh, completely. So like there's yeah. there's a difference between your arrogant player that has a lot of self belief and it's all completely unfounded versus your Let's have guy some that, examples of that. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we go to Joe for his wall chart Yay. and then we'll come back to me for those. No. I've got the chart, gang. Craig Bellamy. Also, it's time to go home in a minute, isn't it? Uh, it's quite late now. But the reason I got the chart is because uh, I didn't take notes earlier as Seb suggested, um, but I can re I couldn't remember. You said you would, you would keep notes in your head. I said I'd remember, but I can't remember anyway. The thing that made me think this is a bit mad is the Netherlands, because the Netherlands are in Group C, right? The Netherlands are in, in the group with Austria, North Macedonia, and Ukraine. Now, Group C will play, I think, some games tomorrow. Yes. That's right. Yes, yeah? that's right. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be talking about this as well tomorrow. But uh, currently, at the top of the group, have, having beaten Ukraine, uh, uh, Austria, I suppose. Oh, maybe Austria, top of the group on goal difference. Whatever. The point is that the Netherlands are potentially, based on their performance, 
perhaps likely to to win that group. I mean, the consensus in the room earlier was that Ukraine is still um, a good team to finish second. If they were to win their group, as expected, Group C, the first place team in Group C plays in, in uh, round of 16 game number three against the third team from Groups D, E or F. So there's a small chance here that they could draw a Portugal or a Germany uh, from Group F, but more likely they will uh, face a team, perhaps Poland, perhaps Slovakia, uh, perhaps uh, Czech Republic, perhaps Scotland, right? You feel like the Netherlands could win any of those games, okay? In which case, the winner of group th- of game three goes into the quarterfinals to play the winner of uh, game one. <laughs> this is quite long. <laughs> got lost. Point is, that is second place from group A or group B, which is very likely to be, at this, at this time, Wales or maybe Russia or Denmark, Right. That is also a winnable game, yeah. which then takes you to the semi-finals before they face a team that you don't think that they will definitely win. That's the easiest route, as far as I can work out, to the semi-finals for every. It doesn't feel right to me, and I know England had an easy route in the World Cup, right? And there's always a team that yeah. has an easy route. I think it I mean, might be the Netherlands. I yeah, I, I'd say I'm not a, angry about it. There's, I just there's, there's a difference though. But though, I mean, England played Colombia in the last of sixteen, and you know, a sure. competent. You know, England didn't play minnows outside of the group stage. Panama, yes, of course, but uh, they beat teams they should beat absolutely. But it's different, and this is kind of it's something we we talked about last night, which was this is the cost of expanding tournaments because if you who did they it, play in the round of sixteen? Was it Sweden? I know Colombia and then Sweden in the quarterfinals. Sweden in the quarterfinals. And then, you know uh, Croatia in seven. But also we were looking at this earlier, and England's side of the draw was extravagantly easier than the other side of the draw. No, I, I agree. It's just that at any one time in Europe, you're going to have what maybe five or six really top class, if that five or six very good teams, probably two or three top class ones. If you want to have a round of 16 in a European Championship, you are going to get this because there isn't really an effective way of evening it out without some kind of slightly um, artificial seeding system. I don't know how that would work for a knockout round, really. Um, Whereby you're going to have games which allow inferior teams to get through, and you can argue that both ways. Either it's, um, it's not what you want to see as a neutral, or you give chances to teams that otherwise in previous generations wouldn't have got that far to go deep into tournaments, uh, play one-off games against really good sides and perhaps cause a shock. Have another Greece, maybe. I, I don't know. But sure. It's In this case, though, it feels like we would see that for the Netherlands. And I have nothing against the Netherlands, but they are a team I've seen go that deep in a tournament before. I, w- I, I suppose I, if, if I thought it was Ukraine that would go that far, I think maybe that'd be kind of exciting. That would be more interesting. Feels a bit unfair to the Netherlands now, doesn't it, that I'm saying this? I feel like the strength of the European Championship used to be 16 teams, all pretty good, very few easy games, and that was great. Like, I, I'm all for more football um, in a tournament. That's It's kind of rare to find me making an argument against that, but I just feel like making tournaments bigger all the time, bigger, 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 big expansion, 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 this is where it leaves you. Lack of jeopardy and yeah. games that, not that you don't care about, but they don't, they don't speak to you in the same way as, say, like Germany, France did to all of us last night. Sure. That's the difference, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's a comment in the chat, someone saying that the, the, the tournament is all set up for the big teams. I think it's quite the opposite. I think Belgium and Italy, if they do as expected, they will meet in the quarterfinals, right? Which means only one of those teams will go beyond that stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see the split across A to C versus D to F. There are, there are meetings when you get to the quarters and the semis, but mostly it, it's stuck to those sides. On the A to B side, 
we have Belgium and we have Italy, who are the two standout teams. And that's sort of, that's, that's top tier over there. The Netherlands, we weren't sure of before the tournament began. On the other side, we have England, we have Croatia, we have Spain, we have France, we have Portugal, we have Germany. It feels heavily stacked on yeah. one side. Yeah. Many of these teams will be eliminated before we even get to face teams from the, the other side of the bracket. I don't think it is set up for the big time. And in a way, that's quite exciting and that's kind of cool. I guess it's just a problem with tournament football, isn't it? That it's not, it's not a league. You don't get to see every team against every team. It's, you know, different routes are lucky or unlucky based on where you're drawn and that's kind of how it all works. Yeah, it's just random, isn't it? It's not like it matters. Well, there we go. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the TIFO podcast this evening. We'll be back tomorrow with whatever games are happening then. Uh, until then, Seb Safferball, thank you. Thank you, Joe Devine. Alex Stewart, thank you. Thank you, Joe. And thanks, of course, to Don and Sol, our uh, healthy production crew for this evening. little wave there from Don. There's Don's hand. Uh, we'll be joined again tomorrow by uh, JJ, I believe. We'll have Alex back for the weekend. And, um, yeah, have a lovely Thursday, Wednesday. Have a lovely week. Goodbye. Goodbye.